Hello, this is Richard Hermer, and welcome to another edition of the Matrix Law Pod, or more accurately, a bonus edition of the Matrix Law Pod, because today, rather than a virtual studio discussion with a guest, we're broadcasting a seminar that was held together with Hickman Rose and Matrix, looking at COVID-19 and the criminal law. It's a fascinating discussion. It's chaired by Matthew Taylor, the chief executive of the RSA. And the panelists are uh, Lord Ken McDonald, former director of public uh, prosecutions, Lord Newberger, former president of the Supreme Court, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, and Jenny Wiltshire, head of serious crimes at Hickman Rose. And the panel examine the role that criminal law is increasingly playing in regulating our behaviour during the pandemic, but also the discussion pans more broadly to look at the need for considering not simply scientific advice as the source of our regulation, but also more widely looking at economics and behavioural psychology. It's a fascinating discussion. We hope you enjoy it and we'll see you next time on the Matrix Law Pod. Okay, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, Welcome to this uh, event uh, organized by Matrix Chambers and Hickman Rose uh, Solicitors. Um, Thank you all for taking the time to join us this morning. We think we're gonna have a really fascinating a conversation. My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm by far the least expert person uh, that will be speaking to you over the next few minutes, but I will be chairing the event um, and in particular uh, looking at the questions that we hope that you will pose uh, later on um, in our proceedings and directing those to our distinguished group of speakers. So I'm going to introduce the speakers one by one when it comes to their turn uh, to speak to you. But before I do any of that, I'm going to ask Ben Rose from uh, Hickman Rose to just say a bit about why um, he and the his team and the team at Matrix decided to pull this event together and, and what you're hoping to get out of it, Ben. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I'm sure you'll all be aware that successive governments of all political persuasions have used and misused the criminal law to seek to achieve their objectives. Today's webinar seeks to get to grips with this government's approach to achieving its public health goals by the use of the criminal law. This is a complicated issue and we have a stellar panel to engage with it. I'm glad to say that doesn't include me. And the purpose of the event is really to stir and promote the debate which has raged across the papers of people as people have been arrested, detained and prosecuted for infringements of a very unclear criminal law, which I hope this will become clear as the panel and the proceedings uh, unfold. I'm not going to say more because this event is only lasting an hour. I'm going to hand back to Matthew, who in turn will introduce you to the speakers. So enjoy the event, and I hope you get to ask any questions that you've got, and we have a good debate. Thank you. Great. Uh, Well, uh, thanks, Ben. We're going to start off uh, getting a kind of view, really, of what's happening on the ground. What do we know about the way in which the criminal law has been used, uh, how the police are interpreting it, what's actually been happening to citizens across the UK over the last few months? And to get that kind of perspective, that kind of granularity in terms of what 
we know. Uh, I, I bring in our first speaker, uh, Jenny Wiltshire. Uh, Jenny is Head of Serious and General Crime at Hickman Rose. Over to you, Jenny. Thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be in such illustrious company here today, even if it's only virtually. Um, I'm sure my fellow speakers are much better placed than me to tackle the politics and even the philosophy of the restrictions on, on liberty that are imposed by the various COVID regulations. But I thought it would be useful for me to start by quickly setting out the impact that these laws are having on the ground and some of the practical problems they're causing. It seems like a long time ago now, but the evening of March the 23rd is this year was when Boris Johnson announced the UK's first national lockdown. After we got over the shock, most people's first reaction was confusion. One of the first questions to be asked was from the Police Federation. They wanted to know how they were going to be expected to police this. It was a good question. The coronavirus bill, which was working its way through Parliament at the time, ran to hundreds of pages. I had flicked through it and was none the wiser. Where did it say it was an offence to leave the house unless it was essential to do so? What gave the police the power to enforce? The answers came three days later when the, corona, when the health protection coronavirus restrictions regulations emerged by way of statutory instrument. Here for the first time were the restrictions on movement and gatherings and the criminal offences for failing to comply. But the regulations were significantly less restrictive than the Prime Minister had suggested. Contrary to what Mr Johnson had told us, you could leave the place where you lived, provided you had a reasonable excuse to do so. Indeed, the regulations contained 13 example reasonable excuses, and it was made clear that this was not an exhaustive list. There was clearly a difference between government rhetoric and law. By this time, however, the media had reported one as, one as the other, and there was no time to train the police otherwise. I'm sure we can all remember some of the so-called COVID offences of the time. We read stories of police officers rummaging sh through shopping bags in search of non-essential items. Officers moving people on from park benches. And one force memorably deploying airborne drone cameras to identify any dastardly hikers who had dared to travel to the countryside for a walk. Clearly, in many cases, the police were seeking to enforce government guidance rather than the law. That did start to change in mid-April when the police were issued with national guidance clarifying the law. However, not every police force accepted this, with one force memorably arguing, our interpretation is that it is not reasonable for the majority to drive to a specific place such as a beauty spot. It is also not within the spirit of what we are trying to achieve, regardless of whether it is lawful or not. I'm sure everyone in this webinar can spot the problem with that argument. You may be interested to know that this particular police force has continued to issue fixed penalty notices in relation to the non-existent offence of making a non-essential journey and now, and now prosecuting those who de decline to pay. I think it's fair to say that the COVID regulations have resulted in a fixed penalty notice bonanza. In September, The Guardian reported that nearly 19,000 fixed penalty notices had been issued in England and Wales. Around half had reportedly not been paid. Those, fixed, those unpaid notices are now being referred for prosecution, adding further pressure on an already overburdened criminal justice system. It's only after a not guilty plea and the setting of a trial date that the police are passing these cases to the Crown Prosecution Service. And there's a real concern 
that by this late stage in the process, most people issued with a fixed penalty notice would have pleaded guilty and potentially to an offence which either doesn't exist or to which they have a defence. The practical impact of all of this on the courts is likely to be severe. Legal aid is unlikely, so courts will have to deal with a large number and pay for representation would only be able to recover a fraction of their legal fees. Then at trial, the court will, the courts will need to determine the question of what is a reasonable excuse. It's unclear whether the, this is a subjective test or whether they will be judged on the objective standard of a lay magistrate. As there was no parliamentary debate, we cannot look to what Parliament intended. To complicate, to complicate matters further, the regulations covering the second lockdown phase, which started earlier this month, are phrased slightly differently to the first phase. Exercise, for example, is now defined as a reasonable excuse if it is reasonably necessary to exercise outdoors. Previously, you only needed to have a need to exercise. These different tests are not appreciated by the public or, crucially, those tasked with enforcing the rules. Another issue the courts may have to grapple with is whether these emergency regulations breach our Article 6 rights to a fair trial. While I'm sure everyone here knows that it's usually for the prosecution to prove a criminal offence beyond reasonable doubt, with these COVID offences, the burden of proving an excuse falls on the accused. It is the defendant to prove, on the balance of probabilities, whether his excuse for leaving the home is reasonable or not. Whilst previous human rights challenges to reverse burdens have failed, given the regulations themselves restrict our basic civil liberties, this may be open to challenge on the basis of incompatibility with a presumption of innocence. Um, in summary, I'd say that the making and enforcement of COVID regulations has clearly been a confusing mess, which will cause severe practical problems. They've been routinely misinterpreted by the police, have led to people paying fines and pleading guilty to criminal offences that may not have existed and will now only add to the delays in our criminal justice system. However well informed the imposition of these restrictions were, this is, in my view, a perfect example of what can and will go wrong when decision making is rushed. I'll leave it to my fellow speakers to, 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 to discuss this further. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Jenny. And, and as I said, it's really important, I think, to have that kind of baseline of, of, of knowledge of, of what's going on. I just got one question for you. I, I mean, I, I guess at this stage, there's probably a paucity of detailed data. But do you have any sense, Jenny, of the profile of those people who are most likely to have been subject to uh, prosecution under these regulations? I don't think there's necessarily a profile. I think there's definitely a postcode lottery in terms of forces who are issuing far more. I think the reports are 80 times more um, fixed penalty notices in some areas compared to others. So I think it's more a regional difference rather than the profile in people being stopped. Um, there's, there's no sense, for example, that it's particularly young people. I mean, I'm reading through the, the, the newspapers or you know, the media, it, it the, the kind of examples that are given of people who are not observing the regulations on a kind of broad scale tends to focus on on younger people and then certain other times on certain other kinds of communities. But there's nothing in the data yet to 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 to, to suggest that there's a particular profile. I think I think it's too early to tell as these cases are only really ju just coming to court now. I think only time will tell. 
Okay, well, that's obviously something to look out for. Uh, well, thanks, Jenny. That's uh, great. Um, our next two speakers, well, I think, look in different ways at whether or not the criminal law is the right kind of tool to be using for this kind of uh, challenge and what it means more broadly for the criminal justice uh, system. So to get into those uh, issues, uh, first, we're going to hear from Lord uh, Ken McDonald, who's at Matrix Chambers, but a former director of public prosecution. So Ken, over to you. Okay, um, thanks, Matthew. And thanks, Jenny. That, that gives a very um, clear picture of uh, some of the chaos that, that frontline defence lawyers and prosecutors are facing on the ground. And I think it's no great surprise that the first few prosecutions brought um, appear to have been for criminal offences that um, don't exist. And I don't blame the prosecutors for that. I blame an uncertain uh, and chaotic lawmaking regime. And I want to say a little bit more about that, how these regulations um, came into force, because I think that's relevant to the problems that we've seen since. And obviously in March, the government was faced with a public health emergency. The press was rampant. There was palpable public concern. And we had before us the example uh, of Italy. And we were said, as you all remember, to be about four weeks behind Italy. So it was all very alarming. The question is, what was to be done and by what um, mechanism? The government here chose a very broad piece of legislation, the UK Coronavirus Act 2020, and powers to make regulations, specific regulations, under separate um, pre-existing legislation, in the end with minimal uh, scrutiny. Actually, the Coronavirus Act didn't get much scrutiny either. This is a large piece of legislation, as Jenny said, 348 pages, 102 sections, 29 schedules. It was debated for one day in the House of Commons and one day in the House of Lords. Now, again, as Jenny has pointed out, this legislation contains no general lockdown power and very few of the specific powers to control the lives of healthy as opposed to ill people that we've been living with for the past few months. So where did those powers come from? Now, as Lord Sumption has pointed out, in order to enact these regulations, the stay-at-home orders, the social mixing rules and so on, the government could have resorted to powers it already had under the Civil Contingencies Act of 2004, which authorises ministers to make regulations to deal with a very wide variety of public emergencies, could almost have had the COVID emergency in mind when it was drafted. I remember the passage of this act quite well. It was very controversial. Some people saw it as Orwellian in nature, and perhaps partly as a response to that, the level of parliamentary scrutiny for regulation making on, under that act was set very high. Emergency regu regulations would have to be laid in draft in advance before parliament. If the situation was too urgent for that, they had to be laid before parliament within seven days or lapse. They had to be reapproved every 30 days, and parliament could amend or revoke them at any time. And all of these provisions existed precisely because of the drastic nature of the powers of 1984, under which scrutiny is much more limited. In emergencies, legislation didn't have to be laid at all in draft and could nevertheless retain their force for 28 days in the absence of any scrutiny at all. This limit could be extended by any period during which Parliament wasn't sitting, and Parliament had no power to amend regulations under the Public Health Act and couldn't remove its approval once given. 
Indeed, Mrs. Thatcher's government told the Constitution Committee of the House of Lords that a lower level of scrutiny was appropriate under this legislation because it related only to controlling the movement of infected people and regulations would be minor in scope and effect. It is, I think, impossible to escape the conclusion the government resorted to this act for regulation making precisely because the level of parliamentary scrutiny was so low. And this is alarming, I think, in a situation where the regulations are so profoundly intrusive into the private lives of law-abiding citizens in ways not previously known to the criminal law in this country. A failure on the part of our parliament to scrutinize such regulations with care would, I think, be a monumental lapse in our governing arrangements, and I think that's what we experienced. Now, on the 23rd of March of this year, as Jenny has pointed out, in the course of a TV broadcast watched by no less than 23 million people, probably most of the people uh, uh, on this webinar, the Prime Minister said he was, quote, giving an instruction to the British people, and this was that they must stay at home. The following day, the Health Secretary said this wasn't advice, it was what he called rules. And as you remember, several police forces around the country were very quick to announce that these rules would be enforced. But these were not rules. And British Prime Ministers have no general power in the absence of existing law or regulation to give instructions to the British people. The Prime Minister can't create criminal law by the simple expedient of appearing on television, and the police certainly have no power to enforce such instructions. Public emergency or not, this approach was sinister and wrong. And stripped of the politics, it amounted, I think, to an attempted abuse of the criminal law, for which I think we're now paying the price. But it was also cynical, because it wasn't until three days later, on the 26th of March, that the government made its regulations under the Public Health Act, giving some footing at last to the Prime Minister's instruction. And it can hardly be a coincidence that this was the day after the House of Commons had risen for Easter on the 25th. I say that because, as we've seen, this, mean, this meant that the period before which the government would be obliged to bring its regulations to Parliament for approval was therefore significantly extended. To the 28 days automatically allowed under the Public Health Act, we could now add the 21 days of recess. The regulations creating the most intrusive criminal offences we'd ever seen would exist unscrutinised until the middle of May, which was incidentally the time at which the initial period of lockdown was to be reviewed. So we were all living under criminal laws that had undergone no scrutiny whatsoever. Now, I don't think people obeyed Mr. Johnson's instruction to stay at home because they thought it was the law or that it would be a criminal offence to do so. They just felt it was the right thing to do in the face of a pandemic. And there was, you'll recall, a very high degree of compliance in those days. Equally, I think that most people didn't believe that for police officers to search through people's bags to see if they bought non-essential items, as one force instructed officers to do, was right or appropriate. I think most people thought this was completely out of order, and it damaged their confidence both in the police and in the criminal law. And I think most people thought that when the Derbyshire police sent up drones to film and shame people who were perfectly lawfully exercising in the Peak District, that was out of order too. I think most people went into lockdown on the 23rd of March because they believed the government had their best interests at heart and because they believed it was the right and safest thing to do. But the criminal law, like policing, needs consent. We can't prosecute everyone. And uncertainty and the perception of a lack of proportion 
a sense of the criminal law intruding into places it doesn't belong, these things all weaken consent. They create doubt. When the prime minister himself cannot answer a simple question from a journalist about what is allowed and what is not allowed, what are those subject to the laws to think? When relatives are prevented from sitting close to each other at funerals, where is the dignity of the criminal law? I would say the criminal law has been damaged by its role in this saga, by the means chosen by the government to make new offences, by the alacrity with which some police areas were content to do the bidding of ministers rather than to confine themselves to enforcing existing and widely understood law, and by the creation of wholesale confusion about what the law actually is. But everything comes with a price, and that's clear to see all around us. The difference in public behaviour during this second lockdown, as opposed to during the first, reflect a weakened confidence in the government's message and a weakened respect for the law. Actually, and more optimistically, they may also represent a greater maturity. People making reasoned judgments for themselves. And this is something the criminal law should be very slow to regulate. Thank you, Ken. Um, just one kind of question. In terms of, you know, you're somebody who's, you know, worked up close with government and sees how it operates. Why do you think it was that the government, and Downing Street in particular, pursued this route, given that there was a relatively high degree of consensus in Parliament about the need to act? This was not an issue where... The, the executive had to force this through because it was massively controversial. So what was it that led to this uh, strategy? Was it simply a, a, a need to be able to make grand statements or was it simply the executive's intolerance of having to answer difficult questions? I'm not sure it's either of those things. You know, when you're, when you're sitting in Whitehall or sitting in government, and I'm sure David can confirm this, things feel different. You know, your responsibility feels different. Your accountability feels different. And you do feel that quite in, intensely. You know, if a terrorist bomb goes off, somehow you, you feel responsible and you feel you have to react, respond. If there's a pandemic, suddenly you feel responsible for people's health and you feel it keenly. And that can lead um, to overreach. But it's usually well-motivated and well-meaning. I don't think this was a, a, some sort of brutal dictatorial power grab by the government, I think they were faced with a very scary situation and they were probably scared as they were making their decisions. They were faced with a lot of press uh, pressure. There was some public pressure for a lockdown, as you'll remember, and in some ways it's the path of least resistance. I, I do criticise them for the way in which they brought these regulations about and the mechanisms that they chose, but I'm sure their instincts were well-meaning instincts, and I'm sure they had at heart a desire to protect people um, from this disease. So I'm not suggesting for one moment that the entire enterprise was cynical. I don't believe it was. I, I think there were some missteps, and I think some of those missteps were driven by a degree of cynicism. But by and large, I think they will have believed that they were doing the right thing, as I think people in government usually do. And do you think it's in any way 
to do with a kind of assumption in government that due process is onerous and will always slow things down and make them more difficult, rather than an approach that says, well, there is due process. And actually, there is a way of using that in a way which is going to get us the outcome we want. So that the, the first instinct is to bypass rather than to, to work with the, the, the tools, that, the legitimate tools at, at hand. I think we got into a bad place in terms of the relationship between the executive and parliament uh, during the, the Brexit process. And I think there's a sense in which this government did begin to see Parliament as an encumbrance, as a problem, as a roadblock, as something to be stepped around rather than waded through. And perhaps some of that attitude was carried over into this. I don't suppose ministers would have relished a serious debate on a regulation that um, people could do this or couldn't do that. Much simpler for them to do it this way. Again, really the path of least... Resistance. So parliament, parliamentary scrutiny is a messy, tedious, difficult business for governments. And by and large, if they can avoid it, they will. Well, thank you, Ken. Just a reminder to everybody uh, attending this event, do use the Q&A function uh, in Zoom to send your questions uh, through. Uh, I will bring some of those questions to the panel at the end of uh, the, the, the contributions and some of the other questions we will respond to in different uh, uh, ways, possibly after the event or whatever. But all those questions are useful to us to understand your views and, and do make comments as well if you want to in the Q&A function. Okay, so to get a further perspective on this question of the limits on the use of the law and how this legislation has been used. I'm going to turn to Lord David Neuberger QC, who's a former president of the Supreme Court. David. I am, in a way, am going to track much of what's been said, which I apologise in advance. But on the other hand, uh, what's been said is a useful introduction to my perspective. In this country, we pride ourselves on the fact that we have enjoyed uninterrupted parliamentary democracy for longer than any other large country. Lesson one in UK constitutional law is that parliament is supreme and it's parliament which makes our laws. Yet this year, the most draconian restrictions that have ever been imposed on our liberty have been implemented not by parliament really, but by ministerial fiat. As Ken MacDonald has explained, and as Jonathan Sumption said more fully in a lecture given a couple of weeks ago, rather than putting these powers into the Coronavirus Act for Parliament to consider in March this year, or exercising their powers under uh, the 2004 Civil Contingencies Act, which would have involved substantial parliamentary scrutiny, ministers have decided to exercise their powers under the 1980. For Public Health Act. It's arguable that that act doesn't entitle ministers to interfere with the lives of healthy people. And the only reason for taking this slightly more risky course appears to be, as Ken has said, that it in- keeps parliamentary scrutiny and parliamentary involvement to a minimum. And it's not just parliament that is marginalised. As uh, We have heard uh, from Jenny as well as from Ken. Ministers have been uh, telling us that there were rules, which were not in fact rules, uh, which uh, they introduced on television uh, and they introduced in documents, which were simply instructions. Many police forces were misled into enforcing these legally baseless instructions. 
Now, I don't want to get involved in the argument whether these measures are right or whether they were even defensibly introduced, bearing in mind the urgency. My concern is that right or wrong, these measures risk undermining the two most fundamental foundations of our system, democratic government and respect for the rule of law. So far as democratic government's concerned, the history of this country for the 900 years since 1066 can be seen as the decline of the role of the unelected crown from near absolute power to mere soft power and the rise of democratic government from nothing to parliamentary sovereignty. I fear that we may be seeing a reversal of this trend with unelected ministers of the crown marginalizing parliament. The coronavirus history, as graphically explained by Ken uh, and also by Jenny, is not an isolated incident. As your question, Matthew, demonstrated, the judges had to stand up for the rights of Parliament in the Article 50 case, when the Supreme Court held that ministers could not change the law without formal authority from Parliament, and in the prorogation case, where the Supreme Court held that ministers could not shut down Parliament and stop it making the law. Far from being enemies of the people, the judges stopped unelected ministers from overriding the democratically elected legislature. But the fact that the judges had to do this gives one pause for thought. Parliament has to stand up for itself, and there are some signs that it's starting to do so on the coronavirus issue. As for the rule of law, it is, of course, fundamental to the moral and social legitimacy and to the economic success of any country. In a mature Western democracy such as the UK, where the government does not rely on fear or oppression, but on public acceptance, I suggest it's essential for the rule of law that people respect both the law itself and the government. This is particularly true uh, when the government expects citizens to accept an unprecedented degree of constraint in relation to their lives. And there are a number of ways in which the rule of law and the government's authority can be seriously undermined. First, if we feel that our freedoms are being curtailed by ministerial decree rather than by our elected representatives. Secondly, if we are misled by ministers as to the law and as to what is being done and will be achieved in combating the crisis. Thirdly, if the laws are unduly complex, unclear and constantly changing. Fourthly, if ministers and their associates do not obey the laws that they expect us to follow. Fifthly, if laws are not or are inconsistently enforced. Sixthly, if the government breaks its own international legal obligations. I leave it to you to decide which, if any, of these missteps the present government has taken, save that I've already publicly put my cards on the table in relation to the sixth. The government's insistence on publicly flaunting its intention in the internal markets bill to breach its international ob law obligations entered into by the Prime Minister with the EU less than a year ago and to exclude judicial review is as embarrassing as it is disgraceful and is inappropriate uh, with the line they are expecting us to take to obey the law. The more the people trust the government and the more they feel uh, that the government trusts them, uh, the more the government can achieve by persuasion and example, and the less it needs to legislate. That's a particularly telling point when it comes to this pandemic. Pan pandemic. If the government is respected and trusted and can give clear guidance, 
most people would follow it. It is worth mentioning that shortly before the March lockdown was announced, the behavioural scientists on SAGE were recorded as having advised against the use of coercive powers, saying citizens should be treated as rational actors capable of taking decisions for themselves and managing personal risk. How much better, I suggest, for society, for individual self-respect, for the relationship between the government and citizens, and for the rule of law, if that approach could have been taken. Thank you. Thank you, uh, David. Um, yeah, I hope the question I'm going to ask doesn't reveal my uh, ignorance, but what can happen now? So let's assume that the good news about the vaccine uh, it, it, it proves to be well-founded and that maybe by the spring we are no longer worried about uh, COVID. There are kind of two issues there. One is, do you think, is there, an, is there a mechanism and do you think there's a case for an amnesty in relation to those people who have been caught up by the criminal law in this system at a point at which we no longer need to be protected from each other? And secondly, in terms of the learning of this, do you think there's an, a need for a public inquiry or some other mechanism in order for us to try to systematically learn the lessons of, from what has happened over the last you know, few months? Well... Two people who'll know more about amnesties than I do, Ken MacDonald and David Blunkett, are here. Amnesties do present the most enormous difficulties, particularly when you're dealing uh, with uh, living people rather than uh, people who've died. And it seems to me that there will be people who've been prosecuted successfully who will feel extremely aggravated if other people who are in the same position are given amnesties. And if you're too ready to give amnesties, that of itself undermines the law. On the other hand, if you conclude that, uh, that, that the law has been used as too blunt and heavy a weapon, as is the suggestion of Jenny and, and Ken, and indeed I feel too, uh, there's obviously an uh, argument for it. I think it's a, a difficult question, which I'm not fully answering, and I make no apology for that because I think it's a good but difficult question to answer. As for the future, I think it's not just the law and the constitution uh, which uh, we will have cause to reconsider uh, when we come out of this uh, pandemic uh, business, the crisis, because there's so many other things that have caused us to think about what we do in our lives. I think certainly there are lessons to be learned, whether one goes to something like a public inquiry at once or whether one takes a bit of time uh, to uh, consider the position um, uh, and, and decide what to do, which aspects need to be considered. I'm not sure. But uh, the general lesson from what one hears from Ken and Jenny and I hope from me is don't rush into anything. And the idea of a public inquiry on certain matters may be a good idea. But um, I, I think we should consider where we are, uh, because predicting where we will be when we come out of the virus itself is quite difficult. And I think we've got to really, to some extent, play it by ear, but play it long term, not short term. Thank you. And maybe, uh, uh, Ken, that's a question that you, you might come back to when we get into the general discussion uh, later. So uh, last but certainly not least, um, our final speaker is Lord David Blunkett. And, and, you know, part of the conversation we've been having thus far is, well, how did this look from the perspective of the uh, executive? Well, of course, David uh, has direct experience of how these issues look when the public has an expectation of uh, uh, action um, and where uh, maybe 
the due process of parliament or whatever feels like it's an encumbrance for the executive acting in the public's interest. So it'll be fascinating, David, to hear your perspective on how you think the criminal law has been used and whether uh, you would have done things differently. Over to you. Thanks very much indeed, Matthew. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but I do chair the board of the University of Law, of which David is, I'm pleased to say, the chancellor. And I'm learning all the time. And one of the things that I wanted to say first this morning was that the learning curve I went through 19 years ago when we had to deal with the aftermath of the 11th of September attack in New York and Pennsylvania uh, was that Parliament actually was working well, that democracy worked well. And the, the legislation that I was piloting through was a great deal better when it came out in December than it was when I published it in October. And although I, on many occasions, was deeply aggravated and went back uh, home uh, needing a glass of red wine rather badly, the, the, the final result was a much better one than the legislation that I'd originally introduced. So I'm taking the view very strongly that time to get it right and hearing the voices and allowing democracy both inside and outside uh, the Palace of Westminster to work is a good idea. And just in case you think, well, you know, you used to be a toughie, you were Johnny come lately, on the legislation that was introduced in March, the emergency powers, I actually found myself agreeing with those who were cautioning for proportionality and for great care in taking that legislation through, not realising, as I think many people were in the same position, not realising that actually most of these powers that were going to be used for enforcement were under the 1984 Act. It did, it did have to be 1984, didn't it? I imagine Margaret Thatcher turning in her grave uh, in terms of the way in which it's been interpreted and used, as was said uh, in an earlier part of, of this discussion. I also think that it's very important that we learn lessons now from the failure to use localization and health education rather than enforcement. I live on the edge of Derbyshire and I was painfully aware of the overreaction in terms of those drones in areas where I walk regularly. And I did write and speak about this at the time because I thought that it would gain exactly the opposite reaction to the one that those seeking to enforce actually wanted. And I think that has been borne out and Ken MacDonald said so this morning in terms of the reaction on this second occasion of quite severe lockdown. I think people are taking it into their own hands and using their own uh, nouns uh, in terms of interpretation. I also think it would have been a, a very good idea to have used the 2004 Act. I was Home Secretary at the time and I chaired the what was then the Resilience Committee of the Cabinet, but I wasn't responsible for taking through the Civil Contingencies Act because that was seen as a Cabinet Office responsibility, although it was actually renewing the legislation that had taken place just after the First World War. And had that been used, then, as has been said, there would have been redressed, there would have been returned to Parliament quickly. We were bedeviled, uh, firstly, by a failure to understand that people were with us as, a, as a, a country were with us. So consent was there for taking measures individually and as a family and community. The week before the emergency powers 
legislation came through the Commons and then into to the Lords. I, I returned from London to my home city to a funeral not related to COVID. And the streets of London were empty. We got from Westminster to St Pancras in quarter of an hour, which is, as far as I'm aware, a world record not equal since the 19th century. And there were three people in the carriage with me. Um, and two of them had come from abroad. I hadn't quite cottoned on how dangerous that might be. The point I'm really making is that people are already started to react, to take into their own hands common sense measures to protect themselves and those around them. Had we reinforced that more clearly, rather than relying on uh, uh, the enforcement by rule that wasn't a rule, then we'd be in a better position now. And that health education programme uh, and the test and trace at local level would have placed us in a very different position. Now, this isn't just a, a criticism of, uh, of a government of, of which I'm opposed. I actually have uh, found myself in conjunction with people on the Conservative and Liberal benches I never imagined uh, I would be in agreement with. And it struck me that if someone who'd gone through the difficult job of being home secretary and been very aggravated on many occasions by injunctions taken by uh, some of you uh, online this morning and had to learn bitter lessons about ensuring that when you took measures as a government, you ensured that people understood entirely what those measures were about and that you had the legitimate power to implement them. Having learned that, I came to the conclusion back in March that we were on a bad trajectory. It's proved worse than I'd expected. I just want to reflect on where, where power should lie. We, we govern by consent, and I think we're all agreed on that. And when that consent breaks down, then we undermine the confidence and the trust that is absolutely crucial in getting it right. On this occasion, I think that politicians were spooked by the scientists and by some public health experts who themselves were spooked because they're human beings. And uh, the behavioural scientists advising uh, SAGE were quite right. I, I've always thought that SAGE needed both expanding and refreshing. I thought that, as Matthew Syeds uh, said in his very short book, uh, Rebel Ideas, even the most intelligent, even the most well-informed people actually can reinforce each other's misconceptions and sometimes reinforce and exaggerate how they feel individually. And I think we've seen that. And that's why actually being able to bring up short the overemphasis on the rule of, on the imposition of enforcement rather than persuasion uh, has been really important. The measures that have been taken that have said, hang on, we're going to take individual cases, not many of them, but individual cases that have put back into some sort of perspective the actions that the police thought they had to take on behalf of the government that they thought they had to obey uh, is, has been really important. I think all of us would have been a lot easier if the measures had been clearer, if they'd been designed to stop people holding large events, um, parties, gigs, whatever, uh, which clearly spread the, uh, the virus, and relied instead on people's common sense. And sometimes you just have to do that because when you over, uh, overuse uh, or the perceived overuse of the law, 
you then place people in a position where they're going to react badly. And in those circumstances, confidence is eroded and none of us benefit from that. Thank you. Thanks, David. Um, fascinating. Uh, so um, I'm going to resist the invitation from some of our questioners to ask you all to rule on the Dominic Cummings uh, uh, case. Um, uh, and instead, uh, I'll pick out a couple of other points that have come through the question. So I think there's kind of three areas I'd like to cover, panel. And, and, and what I'll invite you to do is, if you don't have anything particular to say in relation to the question I'm asking, then that's fine. Just pass it on to the, to the next person. So the first thing I want to look at responds to a question uh, given to us by uh, Michael Verhaeg, who talks about the fact that a very similar debate has been unfolding in Belgium. In fact, from you know from his comment, it's it seems incredibly uh, uh, similar um, set of issues. Uh, do any of the panel have any insights in relation to what other countries? have done. Certainly in relation to COVID as a whole, there's been an awful lot of conversation about what governments can learn from those who have coped well and those who have not coped so well. But in relation specifically to the use of the the law, does anyone have anything particular to offer in terms of international lessons? Uh, Ken, I'll ask you first. No, I, I, I wouldn't at all put myself up as an expert about uh, in the way that other countries have been managing this. One thing I, I would say, though, when we're looking at other countries, it's been quite interesting to me that in, in many countries, which the English in their rather superior way regard as kind of congenitally lawless countries, uh, countries with a lack of respect for the law, the, the level of compliance with lockdown has been extraordinarily high. I'm thinking of, in particular, here, Southern European countries. And I think that's true around the world, isn't it, where lockdowns have been imposed by governments uh, in more or less free societies. I'm not talking about other, other sorts of societies now. The level of compliance has been uniformly high, and I think that's quite interesting in itself. But I, I can't say anything about the way the law is enforced uh, in those countries or what mechanism to use, I'm afraid. Uh, David Neuberger, do you have any kind of insights from, from what you've been hearing about how this debate has been unfolding in other jurisdictions? Not as such with debates. It's, I, I, it's just interesting to note that some countries, notably, I think, in Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia and China itself, um, there seems to be a greater preparedness to um, observe the rules, possibly greater government efficiency in terms of testing. And then certain countries like Slovakia and other countries in Eastern Europe that seem to have a better record uh, than we do. Uh, it's hard to explain. It may be to do with local culture. It may be to do with demographic features. Uh, but um, And also one finds that some countries that appear to have particularly good or particularly bad records this week, a uh, month later, turn out to be rather different. It's hard to draw any conclusions, but you talked about inquiries, given that we may have to face another potentially more damaging um, virus one day. Uh, certainly, uh, it would be worth trying to work out what worked and what didn't work uh, in, in, in various different countries uh, once we are out of this particular wood. David Blunkett, one of the things that people argue is that trust in government has been an important variable. And in those countries where there seems to be a greater trust, a stronger relationship between government and citizens, then things have worked out better, whether or not they've had to use the law. Do you think that that is a useful lesson to be deriving? Yes, it is. But I think there was a very large degree of trust. I mean, likely to a lump it, you know, the government had been elected in December, very large majority. There was quite a lot of goodwill um, from 
people who'd voted Conservative for the first time, in not least in the area of the country um, that I'm sitting in at the moment. And I think that was eroded by change of heart, by the way in which there was a lack of consistency. I mean, take, take the eat out to help out in August, which undoubtedly contributed to the situation we're in at the moment. And then the confusion over whether we should use face coverings, which in the end just seems a common sense and helpful measure, whether it's scientifically proven or not. It's just a good thing to do, as is washing your hands and not sneezing over people. I think if we'd had consistency, then that trust would have been retained much more easily. And I guess, David, that you would also have some sympathy for the view, which is that some of the countries that seem to have done better have done better because they have very strong local government and a very strong relationship between central and local government. And that from the very outset of the crisis, collaboration between tiers of government was assumed, whereas, of course, that's really not been the situation in Britain. And the central government's attitude to local government seems to have varied enormously as the crisis has unfolded. Yeah, I mean, it's been a sad reflection, really, and, and quite unexpected, if you might, if I might say so, from what is a very right-wing cabinet um, that they should have centralised in the way they did. Of course, the strains have now shown in terms of our union as a as a United Kingdom, and it would be worth reflecting not now, but over the weeks and months ahead, of how different people may feel in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland than they feel in parts of England. Thanks, David. Uh, Jenny, I'm going to come to you and ask you, firstly, whether you've got any reflections on the kind of international learning, but also to, to ask you the question I asked David Neuberger earlier, which I'm going to bring back to Ken and to, to David Ronkin as well, which is, in a sense, what do you think needs to happen now? Daniel Macover has said, you know, maybe we need to be pushing for a repeal of the legislation, for example. So what what do you have a sense of what you think should be happening, Jenny, and any reflections on the international question as well? Um, I don't think I can really comment on the international question. I'm, I'm struggling to sort of keep up with the difference of the, the, the law in England compared to Wales at the moment. Um, in terms of the law, at the moment, we're having more and more regulations coming out all, all the time. Um, when when the tier system came, came, came out, um, there were three sets of regulations covering the different tiers, um, and it just seems... Um, Regulations are being repealed, replaced, more regulations amended all the time. And I think that's one of the difficulties is um, just the, the general confusion and everyone trying to keep up with that. Um, so we're talking about trying to repeal these regulations. But in fact, when we came out of lockdown last time, those regulations were repealed. Um, then replaced by, uh, and the government said, look, we're just going to issue guidance. We're going to try not to go back to actual regulations. Then more regulations came in and more and more. Um, I just, yeah, it would be it would be good if we could go back to just guidance and not the regulations. But I just don't think there's there's the will now to to follow government guidance. Bearing in mind the government themselves totally ignored it and didn't didn't create the example for people to follow. And by the way, I'd never thought I would say this about um, lawyers. Seeing that you're all lawyers, but what a great job the good law people have been doing in terms of highlighting the misuse of power in relation to procurement, that really will be an issue down the line. Thanks, sir. Ken, I mean, one of the conversations I've been involved in, you know, in my day job running the RSA is all around what 
what you can learn from crisis, how you can use the experience of crisis to create a better future. So both in terms of the specifics of what you think needs to happen now and more broadly, how do we turn what has been happening into a, a learning possibility? Well, I think the, 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 the first lesson is that you don't rush into regulate, regulation making in, in this way. Um, as David has said, um, as David Blunkett has said, you know, parliamentary scrutiny is difficult for governments, but it almost always, I would say always, results in better legislation. So that would be my first lesson. Don't, don't cheat, if you like. And I think this was a piece of cheating to use the Public Health Act rather than the Civil Contingencies Act. And that's lesson number one. Um, lesson number two, I think, is, is to think much more carefully about where you need the criminal law and where you should instead be uh, relying on guidance uh, and persuasion. And as it happens, I agree with those behavioural scientists who, who uh, suggested to the government they shouldn't go down the criminal law route. And I'm, I'd be very, very confident that the vast majority of prosecutors would think that too, because prosecutors have a very good sense for what works in a prosecution and what doesn't. I would certainly repeal these these regulations at the first opportunity. And, and I would hope if we're moving into a situation where um, the force of the pandemic is lessened by a vaccine, the government would see sense and would understand that there is no need to go back to these uh, regulations in the future. I, I do think that uh, the government has to be in a position where its guidance is credible. Um, and, and that means that people who are responsible for producing and enacting these guidance have to follow it themselves. And I, and I do think, I mean, I wouldn't want to harp on this, but I do think the Barnard Castle episode was extraordinarily damaging for the government and for public confidence in this system uh, of regulation. I think it was very, very difficult for the government after that event to persuade people that it had integrity uh, in what it was proposing and in what it was requiring uh, of uh, in inverted commas, ordinary people. And I think it, once the government gets into that sort of mess, it's quite difficult uh, to find a way back. We, I'm going to come to you, uh, David Neuberger, next, but, but we, we've only got kind of five minutes left, so really just the opportunity for one last question. And it, it partly reflects some of the things coming up in, in the, the Q&A, some very interesting reflections on what's been happening in Ireland, for example. But we, we've talked quite a lot about behavioural science, and I wonder whether... You know, one of the questions for us going forward is, given the importance now of behavioural science, given the importance of, of, of what we can learn about how people respond to various incentives, including the law, is there a need for, for some deeper thinking about this relationship between law and what law tries to achieve and what behavioural science tells us about what it is that actually drives people to comply or not to comply? Behavioural science is very subtle, it's very nuanced, it's very adaptive. Law often isn't uh, those things. So, David Neuberger, starting with you, is there something to learn broadly from the way in which during this whole crisis there's been a conversation about the use of the law on the one hand and this kind of flow of information from behavioural scientists about what it is that actually drives people's behaviour? I think, as we've seen with classic science, as opposed to behavioural science, uh, despite what the government says, you can't just follow the science because science in relation to something like this virus is not unitary. There are lots of different scientists with lots of different views. And if that's true of classic science, it's even more true of the softer sciences like behavioural science. Uh, 
So I think the idea that one follows the science is oversimplistic, and you get into a mess over that. You listen to the scientists or behavioral scientists you want to listen to who feed your prejudices, or you listen to the ones who shout loudest. Having said that, of course you should listen to them and weigh them up what they've got to say. And one of the problems, I think, with this government approach, one of the many problems, I regret to say, is that they've been following the science, uh, or what they like to think is the science, rather than looking at things much more broadly, listening to economists and listening to behavioral scientists. And the difficulty is that because you have lots of different opinions in a particular area, and there are lots of different areas to consider, the politician's job is to draw all the strands together and come to a conclusion rather than to shelter behind the people you choose to want to accept. And um, I think that the lesson that could be learnt is, yes, indeed, to investigate what we can take from this in terms of what the behavioural scientists tell us, what the classic scientists tell us, what the economists tell us, what the sociologists tell us. Uh, but it will be a great patchwork of opinion, which it will be very difficult to draw firm conclusions. But that doesn't mean we should try. We shouldn't try. We certainly should. David Blunk, I'm interested in your perspective on this as well, because you know, I, I'm not an expert on the law, but I am a do a lot of thinking and talking about policy. And, and I've argued for a long time that policy, part of the problem with policy is a kind of path dependency, which makes it difficult to respond. Now, if you look at the crisis, a, num a number of you have said that there appears to be a shift in public behaviour and public attitude as the crisis has unfolded. Now, it's very hard for policy, much less policy encoded in law, to be able to respond, for example, to the fact that citizens might start off in a position where they're happy to obey the law and that might there might be a process of attrition quite quickly so does this open up broader questions about the way in which we make policy and use law when at a time of complexity and where the public responds in real time and and quite often changes the parameters within which the policy was made yeah absolutely and that's why politics is a science that's why statescraft has to be learned. That's why, although people hold politicians in contempt, doing politics well is the business of being able to take on board those nuances, to be able to adjust and adapt whilst aiming at the same end product. And um, um, Churchill, I don't normally quote Winston Churchill, but he did actually say that sciences should be on tap and not on top. And it is in the end, and I disagree with the leadership of party on, on this, it is in the end the politicians who make the decisions. The scientists created the atom bomb, politicians decided to drop it. Well, thank you, David. I did say to uh, Ben as he was est uh, establishing this event that, that could we explore the possibility that in the light of COVID, we might have a broader conversation about the role of uh, law in the 21st century, but he he felt this as rather a kind of grand objective. And, and uh, so it wasn't part of our conversation. But I have to say that my, my sense that there's some very big debates here that would be very useful to surface has been strengthened by what has been a an absolutely fan fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you, all those of you who've attended and sent in your questions. As I say, I, I hope we'll be able to respond to some of the more detailed uh, uh, points. But thank you also, uh, Jenny. Ken and the two uh, Davids. It's been a really fascinating hour and a conversation that I'm sure is going to continue. Goodbye. Thank you.